You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and it's been raining outside, fantastic. It's always great to have a bit of weather, uh, especially if you can actually cover yourself. Although on my way here, I did see somebody under the... uh, a uh, concrete arch near the art centre asleep, no blanket, no nothing, just lying dead set on the ground there in, on the concrete, dead asleep, but hopefully asleep. I thought it would be a bit rude to uh, try and check to see if they're okay because I thought if you, if I was asleep, I wouldn't want anybody to wake me up, but I'll be able to check on my way back. Um, I just take my hat off to a person who's able to sleep on concrete in the cold like that. Although it wasn't that cold last night, it was uh, quite warm. It's been, we've been getting really lovely warm weather, which is uh, something to enjoy, even if we are in the middle of COVID paradise. Um, today, uh, we've got a variety of stuff to look at. One of them is the, um, I mentioned it last week, uh, the changes to the um, different warrants that have been put forward by the um uh for the um federal police and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission um uh, the disrupt uh, the identify and disrupt bill so i went off and found somebody to talk to and we're going to talk to Angus Murray from Electronics Frontiers Australia He's also uh, president of the Queensland Council for Civil Liberties, and uh, he's got. Uh, he'll explain what the changes were. Uh, we were alerted to it by Mel's, which is the fabulous Melbourne activist legal support uh, group, and uh, I'll put the link to their article about the particular uh, information on that. Uh, issue uh, because they go through it and you can check it out very carefully. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, Steve Jolly, who's the socialist um, councillor for uh, Yarra, about uh, facadism, which has been appearing uh, on the Facebook a fair bit uh, regarding um, issues about planning in uh, the Yarra area, area in relation to developments. So he's got something to say about that. And uh, there's, we're also going to follow that up with uh, a look at what's been going on at the Menzies uh, Centre uh, campaign that uh, has uh, developed. Uh, the Menzies Centre is supposed to be um, mush, uh, like a mushroom or an ugly fungus growing in the middle of Melbourne University to honour the uh, longest serving uh, um, 
Prime Minister. He was also the, uh, after he finished being Prime Minister for uh, his 16 years, uh, and there's quite a few people who, people who can remember that period often uh, are quite uh, underwhelmed by the oppressive nature of that period. But uh, anyway, uh, he then became Vice-Chancellor of Melbourne University, which is uh, something I didn't actually realise. Um, obviously, other people did. But anyway, uh, we've got a couple of speakers who were at the, uh, the um, recent uh, uh, campaign um, a webinar around uh, future strategies. Apparently, there's going to be some sort of public anointing of the um, uh, right wing think tank that uh, 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 in November. So uh, things are afoot. There's so many things wrong with this particular um, development in the culture wars. But anyway, I'll leave it to the speakers to illuminate you. And uh, it's just sort of. Uh, gut-wrenching stuff, it seems to me. And we're going to follow that with something a little bit more positive, uh, which is, I mean, you know, not that uh, campaigning and activism around a, uh, a sore tooth like the Menzies uh, Centre isn't positive, uh, but Matt McGowan, who's the uh, the secretary, the uh, uh, general secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union, is going to talk to us about a victory, uh, a recent federal court Victory uh, around intellectual freedom, uh, which and its protection on uh, at our universities. Uh, there was an appeal to the original um, overturning of the uh, 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 Tim Anderson's case around his. Um, his firing from the Sydney University, uh, NTEU, for for expressing particular uh, views that have uh, caused others uh, chagrin. Anyway, he was fired and uh, they took it to court and uh, in the lower court it was uh, that his intellectual freedom protections were uh, dismissed but taking it to the federal court, there was a, a union victory. So... Uh, Matt is going to talk to us about that and he's also going to expand a little bit on some of the other issues that are happening to for workers in the uh, university sector, the uh, grand uh, kingdom of casualisation. It seems, uh, although, of course, casualisation is a rot throughout Australia's industrial landscape. Uh, before we do, two pieces of news that I thought were w worth uh, focusing on um, or alerting you to if you didn't know them already. Uh, one's good news, one's bad news. Uh, but uh, which which news do you want first? Well, I have to choose. Uh, the um, the good news, which uh, has been given, uh, has We've been alerted by Friends of the Earth uh, and their campaign into Friends of the Earth's Yes to Renewables uh, campaign. Um, Pat Simons he, uh, have sent out a message that uh, the Morrison government, the uh, federal government, has finally introduced legislation to enable offshore wind projects in the Australian Parliament. It doesn't mean it's happened, but it, uh, but it does mean that the move... Uh, 
will enable the federal government to designate areas in Commonwealth waters suitable for offshore wind development and create a licensing regime to prevent exploration, construction and operation of offshore renewable energy and transmission projects. Now, you, if uh, you've got your finger on the pulse uh, for uh, MUA campaigns, the Spirit of the South is a major... Uh, um, plan that the uh, MUA are supporting and of course if, if uh, Friends of the Earth has, uh, Yes to Renewables have been pushing very hard for changes in this area and uh, unbelievably the federal government dragging its feet again uh, hasn't even um, entered a le- legislation into parliament but finally the legislation's there it hasn't it uh, hasn't been resolved yet. Uh, obviously, pressure needs to be reply, uh, s- supplied. But um, moving on to something that uh, uh, has really shown the true colours of the federal government, the the um, Scott Morrison and the uh, Liberal Party, uh, ha- and they've got this thing called uh, a women's cabinet. Now, Scott Morrison and his Women's Cabinet voted against putting into law all of the Respect at Work report. So that means they have voted against the amendments that included a positive duty on employers to take reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. They voted against expressly prohibited sexual harassment and introduction of a new quick and easy complaints process in the Fair Work Act. They voted against broadening powers of the Sex Discrimination Commissioner to investigate inquiries. This bill was a crucial chance for uh, Scott Morrison to prove that he's more than just lip service. He's got, you know, he's just not just uh, putting forward lip service and is committed to making real legislative changes to protect women at work and at home. And it leaves workers in abusive relationships out in the cold with the Liberal government and one nation opposing an amendment to include 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave uh, in the national employment standards. And it uh, it basically leaves people having to um, fight sexual harassment uh, by themselves and... Uh, Nothing has changed. So uh, if you want business as usual on... uh, In fact, fact it actually shows that we have a government that thinks that it doesn't have a job to govern any social issues or anything at all except for money matters and do that badly as well. So there you go. The fight is on. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers. And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell.
Well, there you go. Thanks, Rod. And uh, we uh, are now going, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're going to move directly to Angus Murray from the Electronics Frontiers Australia. He's also Vice President of the Queensland Council of Civil Liberties and he's a partner in Trades Marks Attorney at Irish Bentley Lawyers, which uh, means that uh, he's a very pre- precise thinker and uh, with the uh, changes to the... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Uh, uh, to the uh, law recently about uh, identify and disrupt bill, which went in, was passed last week, uh, he generally has something clear to say because he was one of the groups that uh, his groups uh, put forward submissions. Uh, so, um, and I suppose in a funny kind of a way, uh, there were a whole lot of things that happened last week which uh, people being diverted by COVID haven't actually been um, much alerted to. I mean, surprise, surprise, there was a major toll trucker strike last week. Uh, It barely um, rocked the boat. And uh, also there was part of uh, the legislation that changed, uh, made changes to the Electoral Commission regulations around who can actually uh, stand as a party uh, in the next federal uh, federal election, which is coming up in May, and uh, well, it has to come up uh, by May to twenty twenty two, and uh, it's it's actually a very big change. It means that uh, uh, smaller parties have to ha- have registered. Uh, it was firstly it was five hundred members had to be on the books for a party to exist uh, as an entity within that uh, electoral commission's uh, purview uh, which is quite high but also now it's one thousand five hundred members that's what the recent legislation has changed it to so uh, these are you know nibbling at our democracy and uh, uh, corralling um, uh, opinion into a particular funnel, which is uh, quite a devious uh, approach by this federal government, this liberal federal government, which has shown itself to have uh, very uh, focused self-preservation motivations when it comes to our democracy. And part of this is this uh, change to the... um, the, It gives... uh, uh, new powers to the Federal Police and the Australian Criminal Intelligence uh, Commission. But I'll let Angus Murray give you an understanding of what's going on here because I'm babbling by now. The bill that we're referring to is the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identifying the Disrupt Bill 2020, which passed both the House and the Senate last Wednesday and is now Australian law. Uh, it introduces three powers into the Australian law enforcement space in relation to electronic communication surveillance. Um, the three powers are a data disruption warrant, which authorises offensive data disruption powers and capabilities to disrupt the commission of offence using a computer. Uh, it enables the uh, law enforcement agencies to disrupt data by modifying, adding, copying or deleting in order to frustrate the commission of serious offences online. The second power is the Network Activity Warrant, which allows the law enforcement agencies in Australia to monitor computer-related activities of a criminal group for the purpose of collecting intelligence. Uh, And it's important the definition of criminal group is defined extremely broadly uh, and means effectively an electronically grouped uh, collection of individuals 
of two or more people using the same electronic service, which can include a website. The third uh, power that's been introduced is account takeover warrants, which authorizes law enforcement to assume control of an online account that's suspected of being used in the commission of an offense. It's punishable by up to three years imprisonment. So it's a very, very low threshold uh, for each of these. That is, anything that has a maximum uh, period of imprisonment of, of three years or more for an offence of a federal nature uh, on the basis of reasonable suspicion, which is a very, very low bar to meet. And each of these warrants can be sought uh, retroactively so after investigations have already uh, under, been undertaken that's very interesting. One one thing that just uh, occurs to me is that because of uh, recent changes or relatively recent changes, anybody who is put in prison for a term uh, over a year can be and uh, come from uh, another background can be extradited. That's correct. Yeah, part of my professional practice as a partner of Irish Bentley lawyers has been heavily involved in migration decision reviews uh, and the power you're talking about there is the Section 501 Migration Act power, which allows the minister to cancel a permanent or temporary visa of a person who is convicted of an offence of 12 years imprisonment or more. And that's regardless of whether the period of imprisonment is wholly suspended or time actually served. Yeah, yeah, pretty crazy stuff. Um, before we go on to the actual meanings of some of these warrants and their application perhaps to activist groups, there's a couple of things that jump out at me. One is that the uh, warrants can be uh, given out uh, by uh, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and it's been pointed out by Mel's that this particular tribunal is actually part of government rather than the judiciary. And we've been seeing a considerable level of stacking of these, uh, this kind of uh, tribunal uh, with people with particular political orientation. That's true, isn't it? I mean, no disrespect to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And I, I say this and I hold the integrity of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal in high regard, but it is correct to say the Administrative Appeals Tribunal is not a Chapter 3 court, um, so it's not a court in the sense that the Supreme Courts of each state and territories are a court, or the Federal Court or the High Court are courts established by the Constitution. Um, there were some changes made to the Identify and Disrupt legislation before it passed Parliament, which do increase the judicial scrutiny of uh, the warrants when they're issued. Um, but there is a long history with this Home Affairs portfolio introducing bills and seeking to have bills passed that have a very, very low threshold for the issue of warrants. If we take a little walk through history, Annie, the first example of this is metadata retention, which was a bill introduced in 2013, passed in 2015, that allows warrantless access to metadata that's required to be retained by uh, carriage service providers for two years, other than where the information relates to journalists and the journalist information warrants required. And unfortunately, we've seen plenty of examples where the Australian Federal Police have purportedly and inadvertently uh, lapsed to seek warrants before accessing journalist information. The second tranche of this kind of legislation was found in the Assistance and Access legislation, which is the Technical Assistance Notices, uh, Technical uh, Requests and Technical Capability Notices, which effectively allow side doors into the very widely defined uh, ambit of designated communications providers, which is a, a new term introduced into the 
Telecommunications Interception and Access Act 1997. Uh, those requests and notices are issued via either various senior people within law enforcement or the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Um, and now the Identify and Disrupt Bill, as it was, uh, had similar provisions that it was effectively senior law enforcement or the AAT that would be issuing these um, these forms of surveillance techniques. And it is concerning that if you take a look through the last 60-odd appointments in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, there is a common theme of the background of those people being connected directly or indirectly with the current government. The... Um... Uh, other thing that is really interesting to me is this business of uh, or another person on the law enforcement officer's behalf so that the Australian Federal Police or the ACIC can outsource the work to I a private company. Yeah, there's a lot in this legislation about assistance given to law enforcement in the execution of these um, powers. And there's quite serious penalties of up to 10 years in prison for a person who fails to provide that assistance or discloses the existence of the uh, assistance being provided to law enforcement. Um, I have a deep concern that this is delegated, uh, the delegability of the legislation makes law enforcement easier and further reduces the scrutiny and control over the legislation. These are extreme powers that have been introduced into Australian law and should only be used for extreme purposes under extreme scrutiny. Uh, and unfortunately, that scrutiny and clearly defined purposes don't appear in the Act. The next thing is the notion that they can add, copy, delete or alter files on a computer. Uh, and I mean, the ostensible reason for doing this is a good one, which is to stop a, a criminal action. However, Mel's has put forward the, no the idea that actually they could then go to court with information which has been altered. That, that's inherently a problem with altering information is you're altering evidence that's ultimately relied upon for a prosecution. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that that's a clear intention of the legislature to allow that to happen, but I think that there should be a great degree of concern about the controls and scrutiny and oversight of this legislation if there's a potential for that to happen. And there is a potential inherently attached to this because the power is now there. A criticism that I and others in submissions to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, which reviewed this bill and made 33 recommendations, largely those recommendations weren't adopted before Parliament passed this legislation, was that there needs to be a federal enforceable human rights framework that serves as a check and balance against the way this power is used and the potential abuses of this power. And there's been plenty of international uh, law created around secret courts and the way that secret warrants are issued and the way that covert surveillance operations occur, because when things are occurring in the shadows, inherently they're not capable of the same level of scrutiny as things that happen in plain sight. Yeah, well, because logically speaking, that uh, any uh, system that is uh, built on uh, assumed... Uh, trustworthiness of the operatives is a ludicrous arrangement. Yes. Well, it's basically we should have this power because you should trust us. Yeah. And the problem with that is trust is something that's hard-earned and easily lost. And I would respectfully say that this government has been a shining example of how trust in relation to how electronic systems are used by a government uh, is lost. 
And I think it's unrealistic to expect the Australian community to simply trust the government will use this responsibly in that context. And I think that that trust is under additional strain by the way in which these kind of powers, particularly the identify and disrupt powers, are introduced and then rushed through the process of passage without a great deal of public debate and scrutiny. And this particular piece of legislation was introduced in December last year under a mandate from the Minister for Home Affairs that it would be immediately referred to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security that would urgently report on the legislation so that it could pass in the August 2021 sittings of Parliament. And that's exactly what's happened. And that, that warrants scrutiny in itself. That the way that the Minister for Home Affairs is choosing to introduce and have passed legislation, uh, particularly legislation that has such a potential for dramatic impacts on Australians' lives. Now, there's a very important aspect to this for people who are activists, uh, anti-mining and climate action groups, uh, groups that have uh, targeted Pine Gap, uh, and also uh, animal rights activists. Uh, these are people who are, um, c could fall under and probably are part of, you know, are being characterised as criminal criminal networks and uh, related to uh, substantial loss or damage to critical infrastructure or property uh, based on the fact that there's a federal aspect within the um, the law that's uh, being passed. It's a completely reasonable concern and it's a concern that I, on behalf of the Queensland Council on Civil Liberties and Electronic Frontiers Australia and uh, a colleague uh, for the Australian Privacy Foundation and Liberty Victoria made in our submission to the Parliamentary Joint Committee that the intention of the legislation and the legislation that's actually drafted are not aligned in relation to where it could be used. This was introduced under the auspices of stopping uh, terrorism and child exploitation, human trafficking. Uh, but the scope of this is significantly wider. And I think the concern that's held by activists is a real concern. And there's been examples uh, very recently with respect to the Pegasus operation, which was a, a iOS uh, zero-click uh, exploit that was used by law enforcement from 2016 that effectively has been used to monitor and then subsequently prosecute and jail activists across the world. And the uh, jail terms are not short. No, there's significant punishments that sit around this, um, which, uh, again, is a way of concealing what government's doing rather than bringing it into the light. And I understand that there is a, a reason for national security to be done in part uh, without there being a transparent uh, disclosure of what's happening. Uh, but the checks and balances for this kind of power certainly should be something that, if it's good enough for um, Australia, it should be open and viewable for all Australians. And Australians should have been made a lot more aware of this than they had been before this passed. It's kind of interesting because if you look back to something like uh, what's at stake in, say, the Bernard Kaliri case, which was related to using our spy network to spy on East Timorese uh, over a oil exploitation contract, really on behalf of Woodside, as opposed to uh, the Australian national interest, it's changing the nature of our democracy using public tools to suppress action, you know, against uh, our rights, this kind of law. It is. And 
it's concerning in the Australian context, Danny, because we don't have a federal enforceable human rights framework like all other Western democracies do. So we are at a disadvantage when we look towards our colleagues in the United States, Canada, the UK or New Zealand. Uh, and it's noteworthy that each of those countries are also five-eye agreement countries. And Australia is what I would describe as the weak link in the arrangement between those Western democratic societies. Is it is it a lack of appreciation of the need for a de democratic society, or is it a, um, sort of a, a feeble understanding of your role as as a government? You know, your public duty uh, that's being exposed here. Do you think? In what sense, sorry, Annie? Well, in the sense that uh, they see a, uh, the government sees a specific aim, it creates specific legislation, it gets its uh, um, legal teams to create the legislation and put it forward, then they push it through without any discussion, and which is a very uh, foolish thing to do anyway, because uh, any uh, thing that is uh, significant of this sort needs to be uh, chewed over for potential uh, consequences that you didn't uh, expect. But uh, we've got a government that insists, like almost like a, a baby on it with a tantrum, that this must be the way it's done. And so I'm wondering, is it about their competency or is it that they're completely ideologically driven, in your view? Or is that going too far in this com uh, conversation for you to be able no, to comment? In my, in my view, we've, we've reached a dangerous point in Australia, which is we don't have the protections of a human rights framework as a safeguard. And we have law enforcement agencies that are stuck in a cycle of control. But these pieces of legislation, if you map from 2013 with the introduction of the metadata retention to date, the level of power that's being conferred upon law enforcement and the rapid acquisition of that power warrants a lot of concern and criticism in the first instance. And I think that's an unfortunate situation where these powers exist to justify the existence of these powers, which requires more power. Yeah, uh, and we should be taking the opposite path. In my view, power should inherently be difficult, not easy. And all we're doing is making power easier and easier and easier. And that makes it easier and easier and easier to misuse or potentially abuse that power. And that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be without the context of a, an enforceable human rights framework as at least some part of judicial safeguard. And I guess the uh, the steps that most people should be focusing on is getting that infrastructure of human rights uh, within our system. I think if there's something that Australians can do is to demand a human rights framework be introduced by the government that is elected at the next federal election and to pass that legislation with the requirement that each of these surveillance powers and a lot of what's been introduced by the Home Affairs portfolio over the past eight years or so, be subject to scrutiny under that Act before any further use of those powers. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. 
And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we were just talking to M- Angus Murray about the changes to uh, the um, Identify and Disrupt Bill. All very interesting stuff, I I believe. Um, important to be aware of what uh, the federal government is doing behind uh, during COVID, um, and uh, besides uh, not actually. Uh, behaving in any competent fashion when it comes to a national, uh, an international pandemic. But there you go. That's just an opinion, I suppose. Uh, moving right along, we're going, to, uh, we're going on to a more local issue, which is uh, facadism. And I had a chat with uh, Steve Jolly, who's a uh, socialist councillor on the uh, Yarra Council. Uh, and um, it's uh, just a warning. There's a, it's a bit fruity. He has a couple of uh, fruity pieces of uh, language that he throws in. Uh, very dramatic, actually. <laughs> Quite amusing to me, but may not, maybe not for you. So you might want to go and get a cup of tea. I've just been noticing the uh, increasing interest in what's called facadism going on in the uh, local council area that you represent. You're talking about facadism, yeah? Yeah, facadism. Yeah, well, what, what that means for anyone who is listening who doesn't know what that means, it's where a heritage building is gutted, um, but they keep the sort of the exterior, the, the exterior wall. So from, from the outside, you can still see what, what the building looked like, but the whole guts of the building is demolished and replaced by a new building, usually quite a high building. The, the best example is in the city of Melbourne, uh, the old Celtic club, the old Irish club, which has um, been demolished. They've kept the front of the building and they've gone up 70-odd stories, and it looks unbelievable. They're trying to do the same in the city of Yarra in, um, on Victoria Street at the Baden-Powell Hotel, which is um, sort of in South Collingwood, South Fitzroy. Um, and um, they want to keep the outside of the building, but then demolish the inside of the, of the club, of the bar, and then go right up um, a certain height. It's quite an ugly-looking thing. Um, Facadism, I suppose, is better than total demolition in the same way as if you're made a slave by a slave owner. That's probably slightly better than if he kills you um, because you still exist, at least in body form, even though your soul and your heart is crushed. And that's what happens here. So you've still got the outside of the building, so you can sort of see what used to be there. Um, But the the gist of it, the guts of the building is actually gone forever. And um, that's the latest tactic that developers use to get around heritage laws. And uh, often councils are complicit in supporting those, uh, those, those applications. And, you know, there's two examples that I've said that exist right now that your listeners can go and look at as we speak. Has there been any reactions from uh, the uh, members of the public uh, in the sense that uh, uh, Fitzroy and uh, Collingwood and sub- these suburbs are actually low-rise. So it, has there been some change to the um, uh, application process? Yeah, look, it's complicated. I mean, um, obviously, we're in the middle of a construction boom. We've, we haven't had a recession in the construction industry since the early 1990s. It's on parallel. Um, and speaking as a construction worker, um, that's a good thing. It's great that 100,000, I mean, before COVID at least, 100,000 extra people want to live in Melbourne. Who wouldn't want to live in Melbourne? And who wouldn't want to live in places like Fitzroy, Collingwood, Richmond? They're amazing places 
to live in. I live in Fitzroy and it's the best place I've ever lived in. So I'm not going to deny anyone else the chance to live. And this idea, by the way, that anyone who um, pushes back against the developer is a NIMBY is total bullshit. The population of Yarra has doubled in the last 15 years. I'll say that again. It's doubled in the last 15 years. Nowhere else in Australia, I don't know of at least, has had such an increase in the population. The whole area is one big construction site. There are cranes everywhere, in particular in Cremorne and in particular in the south side of Collingwood, but generally right throughout Yarra and the CBD, there's cranes everywhere. So nobody who lives in that area is a NIMBY. They all know that development is happening, that more and more people are moving into the area, that more and more buildings will be built, and more and more buildings will be built that will be higher than the norm. So what are the community asking for? They're not asking for no development. There's no, no such thing as NIMBYism. That's a, a, a myth that's propagated by the developers and some don't fuck lefties uh, accept it and think that they've been really radical by attacking people who push back against developers by calling them NIMBY. But in actual fact, unconsciously, and this is how stupid some of the lefties are, they're actually just playing the developer's game and they're being used by developers to undermine community opposition. Uh, and But they're too dumb to actually see it. But anyway, getting back to your question, what the community are asking for is not no development. It's not even against high rise. But what they're asking for, not in any order priority, is as follows. They want inclusion rezoning so that every big development has to have a percentage of low-cost housing. That doesn't exist in Victoria. We've won it sometimes when we've pushed back really hard and we've wedged the state government to support a council seeking that. In some countries, it's law that if you have X number of units, you have to have a certain percentage, 5 10 20% low-cost housing. That could be implemented overnight by the state government and would, it would lead to hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of new units been built for poor people. Secondly, they want more public housing. That I don't even have to, every 3CR listener with their socks knows why that's important. But in terms of um, the buildings themselves, what we're asking for is environmental standards that have carbon neutral energy. Over 80% of carbon emissions in the inner city, we've just been told at council, comes from not from bins or rubbish or from cars even. It actually comes from uh, stationary energy which is the powering of our offices and buildings with um, fossil fuel-derived energy. If we mandate carbon-neutral energy sources in the big buildings, we'll slash carbon emissions in the new city. They're the things that the council, of, that, the, that the, uh, the community is looking for. It's actually going to mean more jobs, more buildings, but better buildings environmentally, better buildings because it'll include poor people, not just rich folks. And also, um, we want, and we're not ashamed of this, we want to protect heritage. People come to shop on Brunswick Street and Smith Street, even though they're probably a little bit more expensive, because it's got the coolest bars, nightclubs, cafes in Melbourne. And um, if we allow the developers just to knock down all those um, clubs and restaurants and cafes and replace them with unit development, we're, we're going to destroy the area. So on those streets, we want to protect those streets um, and, and have development set back 10 metres from the front of the street. So those buildings that people come to to enjoy those clubs and businesses and so on are protected. Um, in the same way as even the most right-wing person in, in Paris would not say, let's knock down the Eiffel Tower um, and put a block of units there because they know it's things like the Eiffel Tower that attract people to Paris. So what the community are asking for is very reasonable. It's not going to cost any jobs. In fact, it's going to create jobs. Uh, and the, the, the punters are not NIMBY. They're actually trying to get communities built rather than middle-class ghettos like we saw when the Docklands and South Bank was built a few years ago. So 
that's a sort of a long way of answering your question, but it just pisses me off when you go on Twitter and you just see these dumb fucks um, who call themselves left-wingers who accuse anyone in the community who stands up to a developer of being a NIMBY. It's just lazy, lazy, lazy politics, and um, it pisses me off to the max. But also the um, picture that you put up uh, that showed the tall tower behind the um, Baden Power Hotel facade is ludicrously out of proportion to the entire landscape. Look, it's dog shit ugly. There's no question about it. But you know what? That's not my job. You know, what I might consider ugly, other people might consider beautiful. Every time I look at my face in the morning, I think I'm the, I'm the hottest guy in Fitzroy. I think 99% of the population would disagree with that assessment. So, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So I'm not trying to, you know, use this opportunity talking to you um, to talk about, you know, what looks good and what looks good bad because I'm not an architect, you know, and I'm not going to be buying a unit at the Baden-Powell. So some people might think it's beautiful. Other people don't think it's beautiful. That's not the key point. The key point is that we're building units right now. Let's make sure a percentage of them are for poor people. If you can't see why that's a good idea, well, then you're, you're actually not on the left, you're actually on the right. The second thing is, if we're building these buildings, let's build them environmentally to the highest level by making them, um, uh, that the, the power that, that, that um, exists in those buildings is derived from not from fossil fuels, but from um, carbon neutral energy. That's the, the, the two things that we're pushing for. And let's protect those parts of the inner city that attract people um, to come and shop, to hang out, to party, and to live next to, there's plenty and plenty and plenty of places, even in a small municipality of Yarra, like Yarra, to build high-rise. Don't, but don't put it on the likes of Brunswick Street or Smith Street. Just set back a little bit. There's plenty of places you can go high. It's, as we speak, there's buildings all over, as I say, in particular Cremorne and South Collingwood that are going really high. So we're not saying no to that. I'd be an absolute hypocrite if I said that because I'm a construction worker. I work in high-rise buildings. I've just finished working on the tallest building in the Southern Hemisphere um, in, in South Bank. So, but it's, it's a question of where you put it. You don't have a, you know, a wedding celebration at somebody's funeral or vice versa. So this, it's time and place. If you want to go high, there's plenty of places in Yarra to go high, but don't destroy a heritage-listed pub. Don't put it in the middle of, of an iconic street like Brunswick Street and scare people away and destroy currently existing businesses. So it's a balanced approach. And, but the most important thing is that we start building units for poor people. That means the state government rising to the occasion and building public housing and local councils forcing developers to incorporate social housing in the bigger de de developments. And second of all, that we start building buildings that aren't going to mess up um, the climate, but actually protect the climate. Uh, and they're the two things that people like me and many in the community are fighting for. So what stage is it at the council at the moment? Well, it's just at the application stage. You know, anyone can walk into the council and put in an application. Any developer can walk into the council and put in an application. It's, got, it's been advertised and people can object. If five or fewer people object, the planning officers will determine on the matter. They, they could well support it. If six or more people object, then um, the decision is made by elected councillors, which are far easier for the community to um, pressure, to twist their cajolies and get them to do the right thing by the community. So I would say to anyone out there who, who, who look, who's looking at that particular application and doesn't like it, well, then they should put in an objection because if they get six, if the council receives six or more, um, a, a different process kicks in, which is much better for the community to affect the type of changes that I've been talking about. So that's the main thing at the moment is to get an, get an objection. It doesn't matter 
um, how flimsy the application is. It's not about the quality of the application at this stage. It literally can just say this is too high for the area or hasn't got enough low-cost housing or whatever the hell people are. Well, in this instance, it's obviously office block, uh, which is particularly ridiculous because post-COVID, um, post-lockdown, you know, obviously there's going to be a glut of office space. So to destroy a heritage-listed pub like this for unwanted office space just seems to be absolutely crazy. It shows the craziness of capitalism sometimes. But um, um, but that's what they need to do now is to get their, uh, get their objection in um, as soon as possible. The date for that will be... Um, on the yellow sign outside the front of the building, or they can just email me and I get them to de- give them the details. And my email address is on the City of Yarra website. Thanks for talking to me. No worries, mate. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for the opportunity. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And thank you to all those people who donated to uh, keep 3CR on air uh, through the uh, Radiothon. Uh, and, of course, if you did make a pledge, then uh, we'd be gra- it would be great if you honoured it. Uh, if you haven't put some money into the pot, there's still we haven't quite reached our target. We've done pretty well, but uh, putting in a little bit uh, more, especially for Solidarity Breakfast, would be gratefully received. Uh, we're now going to move on to the Menzies Centre. Now, the uh, Menzies Centre is a $7 million has been set up, uh, uh, have been uh, given by the federal government to set up the Menzies Centre in the middle of the old quadrangle at Melbourne University. Now, Glyn Davis, the former Vice-Chancellor, opened the door to this far-right Liberal Party Trojan horse before setting his cap on the top job at another right-wing celebration of Western superiority uh, uh, in in the uh, Ramsey Centre. There is expected to be a, a public celebration of the centre in November, as I said, but there is a groundswell of revulsion against the introduction of a monument to Robert Menzies in the heart of the university, not to mention outrage that federal government money is available to this place while funds to public universities and job cuts are leaving a bloody battleground of bodies all about. And uh, the campaign has begun. Uh, there's been there were a variety of speakers at a recent online uh, discussion about the Menzies Centre, but I thought I'd bring you a smaller a small piece from Jeff Sparrow, who uh, is actually uh, uh, has uh, employment at Melbourne University. Thanks, Jemima, and thanks all of you for coming to this forum. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a little book called Trigger Warnings. Um, anyway, in the course of researching that book, I be- became aware of um, the culture war outfit, the Menzies Research Centre, the people behind this proposal at the University of Melbourne. In fact, I actually signed up to its newsletter and I still get regular emails uh, from a recent one was entitled Water Cooler 193 Countering Climate Extremists, and it begins, Dear Jeff, on good terms, and it goes on to tell me about what's wrong with the emotion-driven response to the release of the sixth panel of a change assessment report. These messages come to me from Nick Cater, 
who's the Menzies Research Center's executive director. Okay, who is Nick Cater? Nick Cater is a troll. He's a Milo Yiannopoulos for the Overs crowd, and his whole career consists of trolling precisely the views that Melbourne University says it upholds. So let's look at a few quick examples. A couple of months ago, Vice-Chancellor Naskell warned that academic freedom did not give university staff licence to write or say things was harm to transgender people. That was in the context of a proposed gender affirmation of the entire university. What does that policy say? It says the university recognises, values and celebrates the diversity of its community, including diversity in gender identity expression. It says the university commits to proactively ensuring that transgender and gender diverse members of the university community will not be discriminated against on the basis of their gender identity and gender expression. It says the identities of transgender and gender diverse members of the university community will be affirmed by university employees through the use of pronouns and descriptors as affirmed uh, by that person and resources to assist transgender and gender diverse members to gender will be made available, communicated and supported. Now, where does Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre, stand on such issues? Well, in January this year, he wrote a piece for The Australian entitled Daniel Andrews Courts the Militics of Gender Revolution. It begins, Queer theory from which today's transism derives is an exercise in applied postmodernism that explicitly sets out to change the social order. Transgender activists are not motivated by the plight of those suffering from genders, a clinical diagnosis some of these radicals would like to erase. These are political revolutionaries who use queer as a verb and deliberately mess language to destabilise seemingly fixed gag male and to problematise the binary thinking they represent. Their actions flow from a worldview obsessed with hierarchies of power and cultural grievances that reduces everything to a zero-sum political struggle. That same month, he wrote a piece for The Spectator on the subject. It reads, It is remarkable how quickly the cause of genderism has moved from being a strange object at the back of the social justice fridge to the hottest of potatoes. He goes on to say, Transgenderism is a reconstituted cause developed in the laboratory by queer and gender theorists designed to satisfy the craving of activists once the dish of marity had been wiped clean. So my question to Duncan Maskell is, how is this going to work? How does the university think that an institution represented by such a person will be compatible with its publicly stated values? And that's a question that goes beyond trans issues. As I'm sure you're aware, the university puts its commitment to Indigenous reconciliation. The university website reads, at the university, we realise that reconciliation is central to the full realisation of our purpose. We are committed to fostering an environment in which the relation between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their fellow Australians is characterised by deep mutual respect, leading to positive change in our nation's culture and capacity. That website lays protocols for welcome to country, acknowledgement of country, and so on. Okay. Here, Kader, writing for the troll publication Spiked. There is nothing like the world word reconciliation to dampen Australian spirits at a public gathering these days. Use spare us a sackcloth and ashes. Reconciliation, reconciliation, however it is envisaged, will never be achieved by awarding the status of victimhood in perpetuity to those certain set of ancestors while burdening the rest of us with unassailable guilt. 
an acknowledgement of the Aboriginal people who lived for thousands of years in splendid or not so splendid isolation before the arrival of the Brits is recanted like a secular prayer whenever compassionate people in public. And then he concludes... The endless and apparently fruitless task of bringing excluded people into the circle of inclusion alights from time to time upon a gesture charged with magical qualities that will put the whole thing right. He's talking about acknowledgement of country. Nice. We might continue. The University of Melbourne has a sustainability charter. That charter reads, achieving a sustainable earth requires global actions logically sound, socially just and economically viable. As a distinguished research and teaching, the University of Melbourne has a social responsibility to lead and engage in public debate and action. Through knowledge, imagination and action, the university will help sustainable planet and will be an international exemplar of an ecologically sustainable community. Nick Cater, on the other hand, is a notorious promoter of climate scepticism. Here he is a few years back in The Spectator, arguing that far from being settled, the climate change is mired in miscalculations, misinformation, and uncertainty. We could go on, but you get the point. So once more, I ask, how does the university think this is going to work? Think will happen when trolls hostile to all the views that the University of Melbourne says it upholds become ensconced on the campus. Now, I am, by and large, an enthusiast for free speech and free research. I wrote about Robert Menzies for my PhD. I spent a considerable amount of time trawling through his archives, looking for information about the years he spent as a student at Melbourne University during the First World War, when, incidentally, he spent most of his time encouraging other people to enrol but never enrolled himself. But back when I was working on that, I would have loved there to be a repository of all of Menzies' papers. I am fully in support of the study of Australian And I think that um, Menzies needs more study, not precisely to bring out his real history. And a research centre to encourage that would be a good thing. And that's why I am so angry that this project has been given over to the trolls of the Menzies Research Centre. The Menzies Research Centre is a troll outfit. It exists precisely to troll places like the University of Melbourne. So the university has to make a choice. Do its values matter or don't they? All the policies on its websites, are they real commitments or are they just words? I know where most of the students stand on those. Well, we'll soon out where the administration stands. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs responded to the growing army criticising the JobKeeper billions, $25 billion according to Josh's own department, presumably a minimum $25 bill ripped off by caring employers who did not qualify, with a scintillating retort which put them in their place. They're making it political. We said last week that politics has no place in politics, and yet here we go again. Misguided, long-haired, commie, greeny critics, including a true blue Aussie capitalist review columnist, and goodness me, how more long-haired, commie, greeny can you get, who still think politics has some relationship with politics? 
And anyway, great retailer Jerry Harvey for me and Harvey for me gave back six mil of the millions he got after announcing a few trillion profit. And, and I think we'd all agree Jerry deserves every cent of the corporate welfare he enjoys. And he does enjoy life. He's always smiling and happy and always proffering advice to government and all of us on steps we can take to make him even more money. And Jerry would agree with Joss that it is far more important to take action against welfare recipients and workers to whom a bit of the JobKeeper trillions trickled down, whom they allege were overpaid, because Jerry is an honourable man. And if the government does inadvertently overpay a welfare recipient, then that welfare recipient is clearly breaking the law. Whereas Josh and Jerry know ripping off JobKeeper is not illegal because Josh just forgot to write into the law that those who falsely claimed all that lovely corporate welfare were breaking the law. And as Josh says, and Jerry nods, you can't go after people who haven't broken the law. And what's a 25-bill rip-off between friends? Friends like Angus Armour Prophet, supremo of the True Blue Aussie Institute of Company Directors, who praised Josh for his directions to the corporate regulator ASIC that it drop its litigation mantra and instead contribute to the government's economic goals and not limit businesses' discretion and flexibility to operate in the manner they see fit while still complying with the law. But if they're not complying with the law, for God's sake, don't do anything about it. See, ASIC has been litigating against the caring business class based on the recommendations of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission into the financial sector, which did uncover the odd illegality and spectacular rip-off. But thankfully, the government, forced to hold that inquiry against its will, has now pretty well ensured it's dragged us back to pre-commission laissez-faire, which the commission found was mostly very, very laissez-unfair. So company directors are happy with us, Angus? We asked Angus. Ecstatic. Angus, for some reason, couldn't stop rubbing his hands together. Nonetheless, the directive did cause a rush for the smelling salts in a few barristers' chambers, good advocates of the law who have mastered the art of dragging cases out for years and ensuring many never see the light of at their usual very reasonable daily rates. Having been trapped in a corner and forced to hold the finance commission, the one serious inclusion by the caring business class government was the term of reference designed to separate workers from their superannuation, transfer all that lovely, lovely money to where it belongs with the caring business class and the great financial institutions, which unfortunately backfired big time and nailed the caring business class and the great financial institutions with the ongoing cruise say to ignore those facts and get that lovely, lovely to where it belongs, still backfiring as the latest figures show, the industrial super funds are still far outperforming the caring business class and the great financial institutions. Although, as we reported a couple of weeks ago, Josh and his co-conspirator, former Institute of Public, very, very private affairs official, and now Polly, Tim will get them, son, have launched an inquiry into how those pesky super funds the industrial ones, are upsetting the capitalist system. No prize for guessing what Josh and Tim are going to come up with.
Josh and Tim and the company directors, Angus, explained that the industrial funds outperforming the caring business class and great financial institutions is a communist plot, a commie plot, to undermine and expose the great corporate sector by appearing to do better and making it appear workers, lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions can play capitalism better than the capitalists, better than their caring employers. Uh, but, But they are doing better. But only because they simply have no idea how capitalism works. Not that there aren't a few problems in workers effectively through their investments in the greatest economic order of them all, employing and exploiting other workers, like, and this is not a particularly amusing item, listener, like this disputed Ausgrid, the New South Wales power grid company, whose majority shareholders are industrial super funds, with the Electrical Trade Union declaring it will, quote, continue this fight against Ausgrid and its industry super fund owners until our workers are offered a fair pay rise as well as nationally legislated super increases. With the union planning one-hour stoppages every day this week and Osgrid responding that if workers take one hour off, they won't be paid for the whole day. Workers employing workers. No laughs or satire in that one. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Joe Biden with capital, told us the alliance with True Blue Aussie is essential to preserving peace and prosperity. Uh, like the coalition of the killing preserved peace and prosperity in Afghanistan, Joe. Exactly. And in Iraq, certainly. And in Vietnam? Oh, yes, we have liberated people across the globe by bringing them the great benefits of liberty, freedom, and democracy. Uh, But in Vietnam, the National Liberation Front was the enemy we attempted to slaughter. Was that in order to liberate them from their liberation? They had an evil idea of liberation. Uh, which won the war, only because they were too evil to comprehend how we were trying to help them. Napalm, Agent Orange still rampant in their environment, trying to bomb them into oblivion, that sort of thing. They were too stupid to realize what was good for them, like the Afghans, the Iraqis, the Libyans, well, the long list. We can't help it if these people are too backward to accept our help. But then Joe did say, no embellishment, that the evacuation from Kabul had been an extraordinary success, which says something about his mental state. He's more demented than we thought, although it was certainly extraordinary. And the good news is that our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Marie's pain in there, and the minister for offence and trained killing constable Peter Duffer are heading off to the US of to pay homage at Joe's court and show we're not backward and stupid. Uh, Not backward and stupid, Peter. Like, you know, like, you know, like, no. Mm, the f- prime example, that Peter. And our man in the US of former caring business class Polly Arthur Sins of Dunnas said evil China was a bigger threat than the 9-11 Saudis who forced the US of to invade Afghanistan. So Marie's and Peter and Arthur would have us invading China. Now, isn't that guaranteed to be one of the great military success stories? Like all those other success stories obeying the orders from our train killer headquarters in the Pentagon. And big supremo Scuttleman Morlashson, a.k.a. Scummo, said the US of Alliance was essential to our recovery from 
the coronavirus. He really said that. He, he just didn't provide us with any details to explain his brilliant thought bubble. And if we thought there was light at the end of all this train killer mongering, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being oozy, said he would spend more trillions to make our train killers even more ready to go about their proud profession of killing people. But do please spare a thought for our former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander, who wrote the extraordinary success, had shaken his faith in our great ally and very, very, very close friend. Today's leaders were minnows compared to great US or big supremos of the past, including the great Ronnie Reagan who was demeted most of the time. So what's that say about Joe and Alexander, for that matter? Our vexatious rant of Clive Palmer Gina's rave this week is, again, something we can agree with. We can never trust the caring business class or socialist parties. See? So far, so good. But then he adds, again. And that's where our agreement ends, because we've never trusted them in the first place. Notice Craig Killey, the planet who departed the caring business class, hayseed and sheepshead coalition because it was so pathetically soft on coal, even suggesting coal may have to be phased out by some time next century, has become parliamentary leader of Clive's United True Blue Aussie Party. Those two should make a formidable electoral force. No relationship to coal into the next century, but see New York Mayor's response to the massive storms and floods hitting his city was, the time has come to learn the lessons from these extreme events. They say that every time, which is just about every day. Slow learners, obviously. Although in fairness to Craig Killy the Planet, he knows there is no relationship between extreme events and climate change, which the extreme events are, because climate change isn't. Like, finally, poor Santosas the Profits, which is distraught that it has invested trillions into its Narrabri coal seam gas project, but as yet has not received approval because all these bloody long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker and iron environmental lots keep challenging it in court. Even though Santosas the Profits points out there is a frightening scarcity of new gas developments on the East Coast as developers struggle to get projects up the ground. Or we might say under the ground, but the worry is the anti-progress long-haired commie lots would probably use a different word than frightening. Might even see frightening as applying if the project does go ahead, showing as Santos us the prophets knows how frightening they are. Good morning. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we're coming up to our last report, which is a conversation with Matt McGowan. He's uh, the General Secretary of the uh, National Tertiary Education Union. And uh, on um, last week, uh, the Federal Court uh, on Appeal uh, accepted that the uh, intellectual freedom protections in the uh, union's negotiated EBAs with uh, Sydney University trump the uh, code of conduct put out by the Sydney University. Uh, This is a major win and uh, it relates to the Tim Anderson case where Tim, as an uh, academic, was uh, uh, fired, uh, dismissed, uh, told to leave 
because of political opinions that he expressed uh, and the um, NTU went in to bat for him. Uh, so I had a yarn with um, Matt McGowan and this is what he had to say. It was very good news to see that the uh, case that the NTU took uh, Sydney University to court over was successful for the NTU. Can you give my listeners some understanding of the intellectual freedom protection that was given by the court? Um, okay, uh, well, very. Uh, I'll try and keep this brief, but it's a little complicated. Um, there is a difference between what people would call freedom of speech and the idea of academic or intellectual freedom in a university. Um, because academic or intellectual freedom in a university context is actually about the freedom of people uh, who work who work in, in academic areas to be able to engage in debate and discussion about issues in their discipline without fear or favour. That they should be able to have a debate about uh, uh, anything from uh, you know the medical matters to the physics through to uh, the, the uh, matters of identity and and, uh, and politics. This is core university business, right? Well, it is. And if you don't have those sorts of things, it, it corrupts uh, universities very significantly. For example, you wouldn't want to have a corporation uh, decide that because it pays a lot of money to a university, it ought to get the results that it wants. Um, and being able to interfere with the, if the university entity uh, is able to be persuaded by uh, a, a corporate entity that, uh, that they ought to find certain results and that then impacts on the academic's work, then that would be that would be disastrous not only for the integrity of the institution but also also for the society as a whole. You don't want to know that uh, you know uh, pharmaceutical results uh, are a function of who pays for the um, uh, for the research, and that the academics need to be free to ensure that they are giving. Uh, honest uh, um, uh, assessment of the situation in their professional opinion. So these are very important principles for the underlying uh, nature of higher education, and in particular around research, but not only. So um, we uh, had a particular case, and, and from the union's point of view, we find ourselves most often, but not always, uh, having to defend uh, people in a situation where the, there's a controversy. Something happens that makes uh, that makes it difficult to defend, uh, and from our point of view, we have to defend the principle, regardless of what we think uh, of the merits or otherwise of of what someone's had to say. Um, because if you're not prepared to defend the people uh, uh, that you don't agree with, then you're not going to be in a position to defend the people you do agree with when the time comes. So from from our point of view, it's a very important principle that we have to uphold. So what was what was going on was uh, some one of your uh, members was going to be chastised by Sydney University, uh, and it was a bone of contention, wasn't it? Oh yes, it's uh, slightly harsher than that. Uh, 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 Tim Anderson uh, uh, was uh, um, uh, basically dismissed from the university uh, because of a range of things, but it included uh, quite uh, dramatic uh, uh, images of. Uh, a SWAT sticker uh, laid over the top of an Israeli flag. Um, and and there were other related uh, issues associated with it. And But it was done within the context, certainly from our point of view, which is the reason we took up the uh, the, um, the issue, uh, but it was done within the context of his professional and uh, academic engagement. 
And so uh, the university uh, uh, dismissed him. We took it to court um, and uh, were shocked and found ourselves in a very, very serious situation when uh, the courts found that the university's code of conduct overrode the provisions that we understood we had negotiated in the collective agreement. Now, that's a very serious uh, concept because the code of conduct is a policy of the university and policies by their nature can be changed. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not necessarily subject to negotiation. We might be consulted, but at the end of the day, the university can have a code of conduct, you know, within reason uh, in terms that they prefer. And they're changeable, depending on the um, wind. That's right. And and the fact that they are subject to change means that it's, it undermines the principle of academic freedom. We appealed to a full bench of the federal court about that decision and got uh, a result, uh, uh, as you've already uh, indicated, that was um, much better from our point of view. It basically reinforced uh, the, the fact that the clause itself did protect academic freedom. It reinforced the primacy of the collective agreement over policies of the university, and in particular the code of conduct. Uh, and uh, while it hasn't yet uh, dealt with the question of whether or not um, uh, Tim Anderson uh, has acted within his rights as an academic, um, it sent it back to the other court, uh, back to the, um, uh, to, to the um, uh, judge who originally heard it, and said, well, you need to reconsider your, um, uh, your findings based upon these principles. And it basically said that, uh, first of all, that the collective agreement has got primacy. Secondly, that the, um, uh, that the, the provisions in the collective agreement did provide uh, genuine protection for academic freedom uh, for staff in the university. And thirdly, that you know, these things are not constrained by popularity. Just because something's unpopular doesn't mean that someone's not doing it in their capacity as an academic seeking to uh, engage with the, the issue at stake. So from our point of view, it was a very, very uh, a positive and important decision for the union to, to, uh, uh, to achieve. And your members, we'll, I would say. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, this has implications. Uh, the original decision... Um, uh, uh, had implications for um, all university staff across the whole sector. Uh, uh, and uh, it brought into question many of the conditions that we had understood that we had uh, negotiated in our agreements across the country. Um, and uh, uh, so this was a very important decision from, from our members' point of view. And uh, in relation to Tim, uh, what hangs in the balance is if it would be deemed that he was expressing himself in accordance with scholarly norms. Something like that, yes. I mean, academic freedom is, an un is not an unfettered right. It, 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 it has limitations built within it. You don't have the right to uh, harass or vilify people in what you say or do, um, but it does protect speech and the contest of ideas to a large extent. And what it does say is that you have to be able uh, to negotiate, you know, just because you might cause somebody offence doesn't mean um, that, you're, uh, that you're not acting as an academic in an academic freedom context. Now, Tim's fate is not yet fully determined because 
the court uh, that the original judge has to go back and reconsider his dismissal, uh, the, 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 um, his approval of the dismissal in light of the decision of the full bench. So basically he has to go back and, and have another look at the case. So we will have to still uh, have a look at um, uh, Tim's particular circumstances. Uh, and you've, uh, the NTEU have in the past had to support academics that people will be quite aware of, P uh, Peter Reed, Ros Ward in particular. Uh, Ros Ward, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, particularly because Ros, for example, went uh, fell foul of um, political interference. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's very important in terms of the work of staff in universities that they have um, that they're not able to be censored for political purposes as well as for other corporate purposes that I've indicated here. Um, there's a couple of other things. I know it's not quite the same thing, but it is on uh, slightly on the same sort of uh, agenda. And I was, I've always been interested in something that someone told me, an academic from uh, RMIT told me, that in their EBA, the uh, university insisted that they have to around conduct and that they were expected to smile and <laughs> and I thought that's such a bizarre um, expectation from an employer yeah and that gives you an, uh, an idea of the sorts of difficulties uh, um, you know that, that sort of things that might go into a code of conduct um, uh, and you know we, we while we might object to it we can't prevent the university from amending a thing like a code of conduct, but we do have a capacity to prevent that from being put into a collective agreement. And that becomes, you know, that so that that is the important point. Um, uh, and as I say, because it has in effect the force of federal law, um, uh, our understanding, which the courts have now confirmed, is that uh, an enterprise agreement or a collective agreement. Uh, ha overrides an internal document of the institution. It may not have reached your desk yet, but it may have already. But the uh, it's been reported that University Foreign Interference Task Force, which has been looking into mm. yeah um, the business about uh, wanting to, and there's been lots of pushback about it. But this yes, idea yes. that um, uh, they want to be able to get uh, academic staff to tell detailed information about uh, over 10 years of their political affiliations as well as yes. whatever their funding has been for their uh, studies. This yes. is, the, this is the quite intrusive. It is very intrusive. And for the very reasons that we've just been talking about, it's entirely inappropriate. Um, and people's political affiliations should not be influencing decisions about their employment or, or the funding of uh, research that might get done. Um, the, the, the universities are important points uh, and low places for independent thought and independent inquiry. Uh, if it's if it's subject to political interference uh, and funded, uh, you know, based on political considerations, then that really interferes with the mission of a university and its role within our society. I mean, you will listen to the radio every day, and you will hear academics talking on matters of to, related to wide scope of issues, you know, whether they be health issues or international issues or whatever. You, you might hear a dozen uh, academics on any given radio station in any given day. Um, 
and it's that independent voice that makes them um, uh, makes them so valuable to the community. The other thing that uh, has you've pointed out is that uh, you 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 say to universities that they probably should stop being so obsessed with their branding, uh, which yes. I find fairly interesting. Do you want to talk on that subject? Uh, well, I think you know there are all sorts of problems that the university sector is now currently facing. You know that that uh, are, are a function of the corporatisation of the sector, uh, where they are treating themselves. Uh, as corporations more than they are as institutions of independent inquiry. And and that has some very serious implications for the community as a whole. Now, one small part of that has been the, uh, the, uh, the, the reliance, which has been encouraged by both sides of politics, on international students for uh, the funding of many of our activities within the universities. And that has driven the universities in many cases to make decisions based upon, based upon uh, the, you know, bringing that income in. Um, as I say, that's been encouraged by government because uh, that's a way of them offloading their responsibility to fund the sector. Um, uh, but the, the corrosive effect on the institutions, it's not, it's not the international students themselves because they have something contribute to a significant contribution to the institutions by virtue of their presence. But it is corrosive. The, the over-reliance on the income uh, does mean that the institutions become uh, start to behave in ways that are more interested in protecting their income, uh, furthering the mission of the institution themselves. And they become more and more corporate in their outlook and the way in which they engage. Now, a lot of that has come home to roost, of course, through the COVID period. At many of our members' cost... Uh, there are thousands upon thousands of jobs that have been lost as a consequence of this. Uh, and, to be fair, also as a consequence of the federal government's failure to properly come in and, and assist the sector to provide sufficient uh, funding. Um, as a consequence, we are seeing thousands of job going, jobs going across the sector. It, and it's a deeply concerning set of circumstances. And not finished yet. No, no. Last week we heard that uh, uh, 200 or so st uh, staff members were being cut from Deakin down here, and also obviously the uh, agenda of the federal government in its uh, methodology has that was shown in the job seeker payment given to private universities but not to public universities. So it's yeah, a favourite, yeah, a favouritism process going on. If we go back to Tim Anderson's case, Tim must have had tenure, and that indicates um, an issue around uh, um, increasing casualisation of staff. People that, yeah. I might add, have invested huge amounts of money and time to get their credentials to be able to teach at university level are now being paid a pittance and given uh, scrawny hours uh, um, for years on end. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, the, the sector has become reliant upon an underclass uh, of employee, people who have been paid poorly. The universities have not paid proper attention to how they've been paid, what they've been paid. And in many cases, universities have devolved the decision-making from the centre to the individual academic. And the individual academic gets told, here's your budget, do what you can with it. And in effect, what the university is saying to them is, we want you to cheat your casuals because we can't, we can't give you enough money for you to uh, properly employ them 
but you need to you know you need to do what you can with this amount of money and so that actually has created a culture within the sector of an over reliance on casual labor and the exploitation of that labor and a lot of that has come out uh, very significantly over the last few years uh, you will have seen um, a wage theft claims uh, coming up at many universities at the moment um, and uh, you know the casualization of the sector has suddenly become uh, an issue that um, well, put it this way, we've been trying to raise the issue and talk about the issue for uh, you know, 10, 15 years or longer, um, uh, and, and it's only recently uh, that uh, it's suddenly become uh, a hot topic inform- um, issue. And once again, I think COVID has put a real spotlight on what's been going on, uh, because, of course, those people are the most vulnerable people who, uh, who get uh, you know, put aside when the institutions are under financial difficulty. Well, it's sort of interesting to me because if we go back to the branding uh, and the uh, obsession around the 500 top universities in the world, um, which is one of the things that uh, Melbourne University obviously clearly wishes to, uh, and other Sydney universities, the other ones that are a top tier in our sphere, uh, aren't their structures being weakened by this? Um, I think they have been. I mean, I, I don't want to pretend that our universities are not strong still. They are. They, they, they are. Um, um, there, there is still... The university sector is going to come out of the current environment different from what it went into. Um, that, that we are, we, it is going to be changed by the experience of COVID. Um, and it's going to have to do a, big, a whole series of, um, of re-evaluations. Uh, of how they do their business and what's going on, partly because of uh, issues associated with casualisation no longer being uh, acceptable, not only within the sector, but in the community more broadly. Casualisation has become more um, contested in the broader community as well as within the universities. Um, uh, but, But also the funding model for the sector is going to have to be fundamentally reshaped and the federal government is not going to be able to walk away from its responsibilities. The difficulty is, while you might have one year uh, when you don't have new students coming in, um, you know, talking about international students now, um, each year that goes by, you not only have the loss of income from that group of students that's coming in that year, you also lose the, the students who would have enrolled last year but didn't, and are now no longer going into second year because they weren't there in first year. So it becomes a compounding issue. Um, uh, students will be at university from any, anywhere between, you know, well, well, three years and in some cases 10 years, but for the most part, let's call it a three-year um, a feeder. Um, uh, so each year that goes by, you not only have to deal with the loss of income from that year, you're also compounding that because the previous year's students there weren't sufficient of them to feed through either. So it it, it starts to build. And uh, the, the difficulties that the sector's got is financially going to be um, continuing uh, um, uh, beyond this year. Um, next year is going to be another difficult year as well. Just- and uh, we'll leave uh, Matt McGowan there. And uh, that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And uh, I'll just give you a little review of what we uh, talked about this morning. We uh, talked about, uh, let's see, 
let's see if I can actually remember. We yeah, we talked about the uh, uh, changes to the. Uh, uh, in, uh, oh, let's get this wrong. The identify and disrupt bill, which is uh, giving more surveillance powers to the federal police and the uh, Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, and how it actually affects activists. It's something that people need to be completely aware of here. Uh, coming, uh, we talked to Steve uh, um, Jolly from the Yarra Council uh, about facadism, which is a hot topic in uh, inner city as uh, as um, heritage buildings get gutted and tall tall um, uh, towers uh, appear behind their facades. Uh, we also talked uh, a little bit about the Menzies Centre and uh, uh, Kevin gave us a round-up of This Is The Week. And uh, coming up next, as I said, is Asia Pacific Currents and we're going to go out with George Byrne. It's a song called In Between Days and uh, I th- feel like we're all part of the In Between Days ju- just at the moment. Uh, Annie here saying goodbye and keep safe. Yesterday I got so old it made me want to cry Go on, go on, just walk away Go on, your choice is made Go on, go on, and disappear Go on away from here And I know I was wrong when I said it that it couldn't be me and be her in between without you, without you, without you, without you. Without you. Yesterday I got so scared, I shivered like a child. Yesterday, away from you, it froze me deep inside. Come back, come back, don't walk away. Come back, come back to the Come back, come back, why can't you see? Come back, come back to me. And then You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.